with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everyone, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Today, I have a a special guest. I say special guest because he was introduced to me by one of my best longtime friends in the world. And my best longtime friend in the world, Denny, said, hey, Scott, I've listened to some Phrenesis episodes. You need to meet Matt. Listeners, we would love to introduce you to Matt Dearman. He is the Director of Leadership and Professional Development at Informatica. Uh, he has a PhD, and he's this, it's this unique case study. We were just talking about this, Matt, before we got on air, but it's this really wonderful combination that you bring to this dialogue of having that academic credential, the PhD, but you are spending your days in organizational life trying to operationalize and, and develop leaders, trying to prepare individuals to be more successful when taking on some of these kind of gnarly roles. So I very, very much appreciate you being here. I see some albums behind you. Ladies and gentlemen, there are hundreds of albums behind them. I'm feeling very jealous. A lot of people don't realize that artists are still releasing a lot of new information, a lot of new art on vinyl. Yes. Um, matter of fact, I, you know, Phil, I think last year, vinyl sales outstripped any other physical medium. So you know, <laughs> yes. vinyl is very much well and alive. And, and not that, but nowadays, when you buy a vinyl record, most contemporary artists will include a, a, a coupon where you can download the digital file. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You have that nice analog physical piece of material. And then you also have the digital file that you can keep on your hard drive forever and stick yeah. it on your phone. Yeah. You know, I was, I was watching 
the Beatles documentary on Disney Plus for the last few days. And that is a fascinating case study in group dynamics. There's going to be some wonderful uh, articles written about that. And then, of course, you and I were talking about the Velvet Underground documentary. I think that's on Apple Plus. But yes, I mean, there was something about holding an album and opening up Dark Side of the Moon and you get a poster in the album with the record. That was just so cool. And of course, it was kind of shrunk down with tapes and and compact discs. But uh, so Matt is a music fan. Uh, I think he is one of the people and that's one area that Denny knew that we would have a wonderful connection, but he also knew that we would have this connection around leader development. And so, Matt, would you talk a little bit about your role at Informatica and let's talk a little bit about some of your adventures in recent years. I mean, you all have been digitizing and really working to transition and transform the organization in a lot of different ways. So I'd love to hear about your adventures. Thanks, Scott. Currently at Informatica, I serve as the Director of Leadership and Professional Development. And in that role, it's my honor to work with both soft skills, professional skills, cross-functional skills across the organization, and that leadership side, which is the ultimate cross-functional skill, right? Yes. It's interesting because having a hand in both of those sides of the work, both employee development and leadership development, gives you a little bit of that perspective in terms of where the needs are. In some of your past podcasts, you talked about that that connection between leaders and followers. Having a, a hand in both of those worlds allows me to kind of see what are the needs of the leaders and what are the followers need to be better followers, right? Yeah. Or, and, and, and to be leaders in their own right. You know, maybe not the leader, but being a leader. That, that, so that involves, uh, you know, running some of our internal processes and systems, doing a lot of facilitation, a lot of content development, very much like the fact we're fortunate in Informatica that we've invested heavily in online resources. And I, we can speak about that at, at some length and, and how that ties into kind of the, the open ecosystem and how I've tried to kind of connect those worlds over the years. We still have a strong you know, practice in-person facilitation, even in the, in, the, in the Zoom era and real-time feedback and coaching. Always trying to drive more coaching in the organization, always trying to drive that culture of lifelong learning. There's some criticism of that term. But it's far less contentious in the corporate space. It's actually something highly desirable. You know, now when you when you get into the academic sphere, it becomes a little bit more of a matter of, of subjectivity and perhaps you know having a, a, an enforced subjectivity that creates kind of a, a performative expectation. That's much less the case in, in the corporate world. You went into some of your philosophical background there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> You were using words like performative and oof, they got big there for a second. (laughs) Only because I can, I can indulge in it here. I can't do that in my day job. I lose them quick. That was my biggest adjustment to, uh, to moving from being a, you know, kind of a semi public space academic to a corporate academic is I really had to tone my language down (laughs) and realizing, you know, there's a lot of truth to that idea that why use a 50 cent word when a nickel word will do, you know? Not necessarily my natural space. Going back to that idea of records, I've always kind of understood theory and practice as like two turn two records on a turntable, ah. right? And how do you blend those? How do you how do you sync the tempo? How do you get the the tonality to match? Right? How do you get it in the right key? You know, all those different you know. And, and so on one side, I might have this practical idea. On another side, I might have a theoretical idea. And you know, the, the work of a theoretician, the work of a practitioner, equally is to blend those two streams so that you have a cohesive whole. I love it. With a PhD from University of Texas in curriculum and instruction, how do you draw on some of that 
kind of every day in your work? What lens did that provide you? Because again, I have great respect. You've got that theoretical background, but then now you're putting that theory into practice. And as even as just when it comes to language, like you mentioned, you got to alter, you got to shift. When I think about sometimes in, in my conversations with academics, they may have a perspective that absent is kind of absent the variable of time when it comes to corporate life, because in corporate life, uh, we don't have all the time in the world. Time is very limited. And how are we learning on the fly? How does this kind of move with the flow of corporate life versus have to be this thing that takes people offline for days or weeks at a time? And I know that that happens sometimes, but I love that blend that you bring, the theory and the practice. How have you found that? Where do they clash? What are some observations you've had? Unlike education, which, which I came to theoretically first, and then the field of practice. And, and I'll give you a little background there on, on, how I, on how I came to leadership development. I uh, started my career as a public school teacher, taught uh, for, the, for the first three years at the largest public high school in New Orleans, a school called Marion Abramson Senior High School. Doesn't exist anymore. It was unfortunately destroyed by Hurricane Katrina, which prompted my and my wife's move to Austin, Texas, where we, where we currently live. Going into education, learning to be a teacher, I was very fortunate that um, I did my undergraduate, my master's at LSU. And at the time in the, in the uh, curriculum department there at LSU, there's a, a professor still active, Bill Pinar. He's really one of, the, one of the, the geniuses of the field of curriculum studies and one of the, arguably one of the seminal features and founders of that field. Wow. And curriculum studies is the more theoretical field of education. It does, it's much, much more qualitative. Um, and as a result, there's not a whole lot of funding that goes into it uh, or not as much funding as some of our allied quantitative fields. Learning from Bill Pinar, getting this really heavy theoretical perspective on education, and then going into the practical side and beginning to practice as a teacher and kind of seeing the mismatch from the theory to the practice. Now I'm kind of seeing it from the practice to the theory. You know, like I'm coming at this from a leadership perspective. Okay, and I've got all this practical, you know, insight or anecdotal insider evidence. Yep. How does that match up with the theory? Whereas before education, it was, here's the theory. How do I make this fit into the world of practice? So I taught for a few years there in New Orleans till Katrina, then moved to Austin, taught here for a few years, got into instructional coaching and e-learning. I always had a second job in New Orleans, second job I bartended. Teachers don't make, <laughs> teachers don't make that much money. Sadly, one of the great you know, tragedies of, a, of our culture that teachers are so chronically undervalued and underpaid, perhaps a result of the feminization of the field, but I digress. So how ha always having to have a second job in New Orleans, it was bartending in Austin. It was e-learning, you know, different set of opportunities, different, you know, different, totally different urban economy. Yeah. So that became my point of exit from the public sector into the private sector. I started doing e-learning on the side. Then I moved into instructional coaching professionally, started working with adults, got certified as a cognitive coach and, and learned how, you know, how powerful coaching can be to drive insight, reflection, behavioral change, and really lasting behavioral change. That was like a light bulb went off. I, I just, I, I always like older students from teaching high school, but then I got into, okay, I, adults are an even bigger challenge, right? <laughs> People always ask you that, like taught kids and adults, which are worse? And like, not worse, but which are harder? <laughs> adults. They don't have to listen. Kids don't have to listen either. And, and good teachers know that. They know they have to earn their, their classes respect, yeah. but it's a lot more influence and a lot less authority when you're dealing with adults. <laughs> so just to, to wrap that story up, started doing the e-learning stuff, ended up running a small e-learning company. Ended up starting a startup, did some online assessments for the safety and security industries. We created an online web proctoring tool, did some product management around that, kind of got into the tech side. 
and throughout this, I'm kind of dabbling with leadership. My first year as a teacher in New Orleans, um, I became a department chair, not because of any great skill or talent on my part, but because literally nobody else wanted the job. No one, no one raised their hand. And I don't blame them, right? I mean, it, it was a tough environment then. It's even tougher now. I was naive and had a head full of steam. I was like, well, sure, I can do this. How, you know, how hard, how hard could it be? Right off the ground, first year teacher, I'm trying to run the, the largest English department in New Orleans. First big learning there was the value of alignment. And I still use that as a lever when I'm coming into a new team or coming into a new uh, leadership situation is let's start with something, some easy blocking and tackling. How can yes. we all make sure we're, we're rowing in the same direction? I began kind of learning some of these lessons naturally. Fast forward a few more years. I'd been doing the e-learning thing for a while. Got a call out of the blue from a former associate who was leading a business development team here at Informatica. He was like, hey, I know you've got experience with leadership. You've got some sales experience in your background. We have this rapidly growing team. Want to come join a billion-dollar software company and, and try something different? Had never had that opportunity before. It never occurred to me, honestly. I didn't realize that jobs like the one I have now exist in corporate America, quite honestly. Uh, Within a year, HR kind of figured out where my skill set was, and they asked me to join their team. And I've been working my way up on that side of the house ever since. So Matt, what's really interesting about this is I have a PhD in curriculum, and I've led... And I'm moving into this space where now I'm designing some of the leadership development initiatives in this organization. And this is the point I want to explore a little bit. Where does your head go? Where do you turn? Where do you turn to learn? What resources do you tap into as a practitioner now, trying to learn quickly as a practitioner? I was very fortunate. My boss then and my boss now, Michelle Young, she's our vice president of talent management and leadership development. And she has decades of experience in the field and is a highly capable and highly accomplished practitioner with very high standards, especially early on, because I was kind of foisted upon her. She didn't really ask for me to join her team necessarily. So I I had to earn her trust and earn her respect, knowing coming in that I didn't know the leadership space formally that yes. well. Yes. Right. Was able to learn a lot from her early on. So leveraging those, you know, the m- mentoring as I started to identifying other areas of need that I could also help to fill from a content development perspective, from a, the perspective of creating programs and programming and learning assets and learning approaches and coaching methodologies around specific issues and challenges. So I did start turning to some of the research, right? Yeah. I'm lucky, you know, I think one of the things a lot of people are afraid of when they leave academia is you're going to lose access to the research. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a big fear for me too. Um, not that I ever really got that heavy in academia. I was always working full-time the whole way through. When I finished my, my defense, my, my committee was like, so, so what's next? You know, like, are we going to try to get this published? I was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> um, you know, they, they were, they were somewhat disappointed, you know, cause they want to keep you, you know, they want to keep yeah. the field alive in terms of where, where I started going to learn. It was that, that academic background, like a lot of practitioners kind of rely a little bit on some of your aggregators of research, your MIT Sloan's, your HBR's. And I still think that's a good place to start, you know, especially yeah. for, for a practitioner in the field to get an understanding of, of a framework or an approach or a school of thought that might go a little bit deeper. I'll kind of start there with with that more mass market, mass audience gloss. And then I'll find some some strains that I can dig into and I'll start going back to the research for that and digging a little bit deeper on it. So that's my current process. Mentoring, I would say early on, a lot of mentoring, um, a lot of practical knowledge, 
lifelong learner. I'm always going to be learning this stuff. Well, what's really interesting, and what I want to what I want to explore a little bit is talk about maybe an experience you've had where you maybe you found something in MIT Sloan or HBR, you drilled down a little bit, and then you tried to operationalize it in the organization. My, my secret weapon is, is that research capability that I drew draw directly from my experience in academia, you know, being able to say, you know, that, that looks pretty good. I think we can do better. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean we always do better scale resources, being in human resources. We're not a revenue generating part of the organization. We're yep. well invested in to be sure, but you know, we, we have to operate a little more lean. Yep. The, the ROI on leadership development is often a little more hidden. And I think that's, those are some discussions that you've had in the past about how do you create the, those KPIs, those OKRs, those visible metrics around leadership development. In terms of finding something and bringing it back, I think a, a good example for us would be um, our, our leadership behaviors. At Informatica, we have a set of nine leadership behaviors. They're not quite competencies because they're much more unique to our own culture and our own approach. And that's one thing I think is really kind of cool about them. Yeah. Now, each, each behavior has three expectations and they can get a little bit naughty. But what we've had to do because they are idiosyncratic, because these aren't like Lominger competencies off the shelf out of the book, no knock on Lominger competencies, but these are much more unique to our leadership and how they see the world and how they, the values that they think are important in their leaders. Well, they were developed by some of your leadership team or, or the leadership team in general, correct? Great. Exactly. Yep. And when you know our leadership team, you can start to see little pieces of personality coming out from some of those, right? Yeah. Which I, again, that contributes to our culture of leadership here because they are homegrown, if you will, granted from good stock and, and, and fertile soil, but there has been some work involved in fleshing these out in terms of, okay, what's the how to this? How, how do we do this? Yes. You know, we got the why, we got the what, but, but we need a little bit more around the how. And because it's, it's unique to us, we have to kind of chart our own course through that. So in researching those leadership behaviors, I've had to kind of go in and pull out pieces from lots of different sources and bring that back. What, what I found is that people, leaders really, really appreciate that level of depth when it's done carefully, not engaging in jargon, really exploring it. Like here's, here's what this means in the context of our business. Don't take my word on what strategy means and what are, what are the risks that you need to be mindful of as you're, you know, you're, you're surveying the landscape for market competition. Here's what the research says are the factors that these specific business units have to be mindful of. So it's giving that specificity to it. Yep. It's making it current and it's making it speak to our, to our organization. To me, that's the value of bringing, of bringing a measure of academic research into the corporate space. And as I understand it, I mean, there's this initiative right now about leading through digital transformation and really helping support your leaders navigate some of those shifts because that's going nowhere. That's a topic, these technologies enabling disruption, many of these technologies are converging to create new business models, new differentiators, new strategic advantages, and helping the organization and preparing the organization. You'd mentioned retooling or upskilling earlier in the conversation. Would you talk a little bit about topics like communication, change management, innovation, strategic ex execution, how you're thinking about some of those right now? Absolutely. Great segue because digital transformation is Informatica's business. That is our stock and trade. We consider ourselves the champions of our customers' digital transformations. How can we help them disrupt their competition before they get disrupted? So our business model is somewhat predicated on the idea of data 
as a disruptor. Now that, that's changing a little bit as data has become more the lingua franca of, of multiple industries. It's, it's still an important differentiator. Now we differentiate at the level of our engagement with that data, how we're able to apply a platform approach and really rich metadata, metadata and tagging to create automated processes and applying that, that, that you know, AI and ML to these very complex data processes. Yeah. Because we are focused on helping our customers become disruptors in their own fields, we have to be mindful of being just not being disrupted ourselves. One prime example of that is our recent recent reemergence on the New York Stock Exchange as a publicly traded company. Okay. Um, when I first joined Informatica in 2016, at the very beginning of 2016, it was right after we'd gone private. Now Informatica was publicly traded for 17 years or so. We've been around for almost 30. So I want to say from 1997 to 2015, we were publicly traded on the stock. We went private for a couple of reasons. Number one, we realized we needed to change our business model, right? We had a great business in perpetual license and on-premise installations, um, but we realized that the future was in subscription, now consumption-based marketing, and much more of that cloud-first, cloud-native approach. So, you know, over the last five years, we successfully, we did what we, what we were trying to empower our customers to do. We changed our business model yeah. entirely. Less of that on-prem perpetual license, more of that land, adopt, expand, renew a subscription model. And now we're going into consumption-based pricing and finding different ways to serve our customers. So we're constantly in that act. In- innovation is part of our, our main value. We realize that if we, in the tech space, if we're not innovating, if we're not disrupting, yeah. We're not going to be around much longer. You know, it's like that, that old, that old, uh, that old adage, if you're green, you're growing. If you're not, you're rot. It's never truer to in, than in technology because, you know, you, you sit on your laurels for even six months, you're prone to disruption. Yeah. So that's part of our business model. It's part of what we, what we see ourselves doing. And therefore we have to parallel that in how we see ourselves and how we lead our team. So it means we have to lead in a way that maximizes trust, that maximizes bi-directional feedback, that maximizes transparency, calling calling BS, right? Mm-hmm. When you, when you yep. see it. But I, what I tell our leaders is that means that you have to be prepared for your teams to call BS on you too. Yes. Right? How are we doing that? We're still working on it, but that sets the standard that we're all trying to work to, to operate to, and to lead our teams to. In the organizational culture, it might be called calling BS, but then, you know, it could be radical candor or crucial conversations or, you know, again, once you go to the academic literature, you can find support for the importance. <laughs> oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> one of the reasons I, I call that one out is very memorable, right? Yeah. That's one advantage of having, of having these kind of culturally reflective leadership behaviors. It speaks to how that reflects the the culture and the personalities of our organization. And the spirit. You know, I'm going to call BS on this. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And we we don't say the full word, you know. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's, it's euphemism just there. Yeah, there's a euphemism in there. So when we talk about digital transformation and leading through that, that means that we have to model that, right? And that, that's one of my that's one of my central leadership beliefs personally. Without doing it in a way that I create puts pressure on your team, you know, you don't want to be that kind of pace setter. Yeah. But but you have to be willing to kind of put yourself out there a little bit and take some chances and take some risks. And especially if you want your team to take chances and your team to take risks. So, you know, really what are the operating principles that we we think are going to be successful for us? What are the behaviors that support that? How do we drive that in our leaders and give them the resources to master those. And then how do we, and now the next level is how do we scale that throughout the organization? Because importantly, we don't say that these leadership behaviors are 
only for the, the managers of the company. These are expected of leaders at all levels of our company, whether Great. you lead through that. influence or authority. So, so there's a, a bit of a, of a common language there that we're still trying to drive. And this is, we've had these for about a year now, so we're still working through them. One of the things I love about leadership is I, I like to think of it as an asymptotal craft. Are you familiar with an asymptote? Say, say, say more. No, no, I'm not. So, you know, an asymptote is a geometric figure where, you know, a line is infinitely close to both the X and the Y axis, but it never quite touches. Okay. Right. Okay. So for infinity, it gets always closer and closer to the X axis on this side and closer and closer to the Y axis on this side, but it never quite touches. It's asymptotal. You're never going to get there. I did an episode with, with his name is Chip Shoba and he was the former Dean at the Dartmouth School of Medicine. And he said, you know, this is, this is a mountain without a top. We're never going to totally get there, right? But we're in process. Each one of us are in process. Uh, what I love about what you're saying is that, and, and this is how you make leader development a profit center, <laughs> because you figure this out. You figure out how do we prepare our leaders to disrupt before being disrupted? How do we prepare our leaders to lead that transformation and model that. And boy, there are organizations all over the world that are in need of that way of thinking because to to your point, there's a lot of shifting that's happening at a very, very rapid pace. And whether it's FinTech, InsureTech, HealthTech, EdTech, so much is happening. And you know, I heard Scott Galloway from NYU say that calculus is an $8 billion industry. Well, you know what? <laughs> and I, I can tell you that one of the biggest challenges that some young developers have when they're getting into machine learning is understanding those algorithms, right? Yeah. It, it, we're fortunate because we're able to apply resources to help with that upskilling, right? Yeah. We're a decent enough sized company and we have a progressive leadership that believes in making those types of investment and learning and development to where we are able to scaffold and build their skills. Yeah. That's one way that we're currently beginning to, me- to measure some of these growth, some of this growth over time is by looking at skill set development. Yeah. So we're, we're heavily partnered with Coursera, widely known as you know, one, of, one, of the, one of the biggest MOOC platforms in the world and uh, MOOCs being massively open online courses, right? Largely, you know, for, for the benefit of our audience, they largely mimic the, the structure of a collegiate course, but in a, in a distance learning format. Coursera is doing a lot of work where they're tagging their courses to these skills, setting up assessments and pre-assessments to do some placing. I, I love it, the example of Coursera because it is a bit of a bridge between that academic world and you know the online L&D 4.0 world of yeah. your, your plural sites and your cloud gurus and, and, and these other types of vendors that are very purely a digital learning domain. You know, yeah. Coursera still has a foot in that other world. And, and we like them because number one, they're known for data science. They're known for, for, for cloud computing. Number, they have a lot of depth and breadth. They have a lot of great leadership content. We just launched a leadership academy last week that uses kind of a skill set first based approach. Like what, what skills do you want to learn? Let's start there. And then we're going to make some recommendations based on what, what, where you are right now. And as you keep learning over time, they're going to, it, it serves up fresher recommendations based on their own AI. I think that there's some interesting ways that we might be able to see that type of curated and platform driven learning 
to yes. kind of help meet some of the, the time strapped and cash strapped needs of, of our modern leader de- leadership development teams. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, uh, how we do this differently, more efficiently. I love the question of how do we make leader development a profit center? That's a really fun question to explore. It already is a profit. Center, <laughs> yes. Right? Proven just, profit center. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it, but it, it, whether you realize or not, if, if it's not a profit center for you, you're not going to be around that long. Right? You know, we don't hear about companies where it's not a profit center because it don't make it that far. You know? As we kind of wind down our time, one last question for you. What haven't you been able to figure out yet? Is there a question that you kind of keep coming back to as a practitioner working to make this live and breathe in your organization, scale in your organization? Is there something that you continually kind of come back to as something that we're not quite there yet? We're going to get there, but we're not there yet. Anything come to mind? Leadership as an open learning practice. Hmm. Right. Say more. I did, I did my, my, my doctoral work at UT on, on open, open source education and okay. co- use of copyleft in, in, in learning and development, really, especially in the online space. From, from that work, I recall kind of that realization that we think about, we tend to think of open source in the digital context, right? The kernel of the software is, is available and adaptable by, by all users with documentation, et cetera, et cetera. So we tend to think of it as a, maybe a purely digital space. We lose sight of the fact that all learning was originally open, right? Yeah. Speech, communication, talking, conversation. That's the ultimate open source. Yeah. Right. And 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 I say that because I think there's a lot of opportunity for leadership development in open source with an open source approach. When I you know first kind of made that transition from this academic interest in open education and uh, and, and understanding the levels of openness with different types of platforms. You know, I, I naively thought, oh man, we'll be able to find some way to leverage these open resources for the good of a lot of different organizations, including you know my own. What I found was that it's it's too fiddly for a corporate audience. Registering for different platforms and you know maybe auditing one, but 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 maybe being able to get credit for another is too much. Our average sales leader, our average customer support leader, you know, our, our average R and D leader they don't have the time to hunt and peck and find things. They need things that are kind of, and they really don't have the time. Yeah. Right? They, they need a package. They need a package. And, and so, so, so something, something I kind of was thinking about the other day and what we really need is an open source LXP or an open source learning experience platform, right? Wow. Something that enables you to pull together these different open resources into a more coherent and uh, navigable and accessible learner experience. And, and I don't say just, just because as someone who wants to, to leverage open source learning assets for the benefit of a corporate audience, I also want to flip that, flip that relationship and have more corporate leaders and corporate thought leaders contributing. And now here's, here's the opportunity for your audience. And I know we often talk about where do we, you know, where, I've heard you ask the question to your other guests, where can we find your stuff online? Yeah. You're not going to find a lot of my stuff online because I'm a corporate academic. My IP is owned by my organization and I'm, I'm compensated for that. So I'm not complaining. One of the, th- one of my pet projects ever since I finished that work has been contributing to open source learning projects. Um, I've got one right now that's languishing that I was, I thought I might could put a little plug in with your, with your audience. Yeah. Um, it's the organizational leadership entry on Wikiversity. Um, I've just kind of got a wireframe up there right now, but Hey, if, if you're at all interested, it's pretty easy to become a, a contributor on Wikiversity, which is it's in the Wikimedia uh, stable along with Wikipedia. Yep. Uh, so it's a, and in my original academic research, 
I identified Wikiversity as maybe the most open of the platforms because it has a very low barrier of entry. It's a lot of text and a lot of image. It's not as interactive. Yep. And I think that kind of dings it maybe a little bit for modern audiences, but or, or contemporary audiences, it is the most open. You know, wow. anybody can get in there. Anybody can create stuff. There's no, there's not a lot of, uh, of, of neoliberal baggage, if you will, you know, associated <laughs> with like, as, as you might find with some of these other, you know, well, you, know you may be familiar with the, with the concept of open washing. It yeah. looks open, but then once you pull back the covers, you realize, oh, they're, they are, they are, they are monitoring my data. You know, I'm, it turns out I'm not the customer. I'm the product. Great. You know, it's, it's, it's getting past that a little bit. It's finding ways to activate more leaders, whether they're in Informatica, whether they're in your audience to, you know, bring more of that to, um, obviously I'm talking to, to, you know, a lot of your audience are educators. So they're doing this already. Broadening that, that, that scope and that reach of open learning practices, right? Yeah. And, and democratizing the information. I think I read a statistic the other day, Matt, that generally a third of the world has not yet been online. So think as, as Elon, who's just down the road from you now, apparently, but as Elon starts, you know, continuing to put these satellites up into low orbit and starts connecting the world, I mean, democratizing that learning and that education is invaluable. It's invaluable. It can all be, you know, relatively open because we can share it. And we, you know, even, even if like, like me doing this today, this is an open practice because yep. I'm not expecting remuneration for it. I've always been influenced by uh, uh, the sociologist Mouse, who wrote the book, uh, The Gift. Uh -huh. uh, and then Saltman wrote a, uh, did a great piece on that called The Gift, uh, the Gift of Education. And he kind of takes this idea of, of Mouse's, which was this idea of, uh, uh, of the gift. It's almost like a type of potlatch, right? Like this is the currency of enlightened individuals is gifting the social function of gifting over time. Yeah. And I think that if we help more educators, more corporate leaders, more politicians understand that function of gifting, it might help open the doors a little bit for, for some of that open, open response and open exchange. Opening the doors. I like it. The doors of perception. Speaking of, okay, you have a lot of albums behind you. Oftentimes I ask people about what they're reading or streaming. What are two things listeners should listen to maybe pull up on Spotify or iTunes, something you've been listening to lately. That's caught your ear that you think uh, people would be interested in knowing about. Are there some artists that come to mind for you, sir? John Batiste. We are being, being uh, having some roots in new Orleans. I'm actually from Mississippi. My wife doesn't let me claim new Orleans. So, you know, <laughs> I'm an hour from an hour away, but, but, but having some roots in that, in, in that, in that region, I'm always fond of, of I've got a big, big soft spot in my heart for New Orleans musicians and the positivity of his message, the, uh, the musicianship throughout, you know, and, and, and the variety of that musicianship is really inspiring. Keeping that New Orleans vein, uh, Denise Richard's uh, most recent album, Second Line, is, is a revelation and how it kind of takes a contemporary, you know, spin on some of those tried and true New Orleans tr traditions. Oh, that's great. Anything else? One more. One record that I have kind of spinning is this idea of assemblage theory, right? From Manuel de Landa, and you know, which which he takes from Deleuze and Guattari. But this idea that rather than seeing things as being, uh, you know, in, in connected in terms of interiority, how are they connected in terms of exteriority and through flows and through symbiotic relationships, but not necessarily being organically connected in in the same way as like a an organism or something would be right. Yeah. What's been interesting to me lately is, is kind of having that playing on one turntable and having uh, something like Reed, Reed Hoffman's, the Alliance on another, right. 
the idea that um, we, you know, rather than saying that we're we're family or we're all free agents, you know, being being more you know pragmatic about our relationship with 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 our employees and realizing there's there's an alliance and we owe them something and they owe us something in return and and it has that kind of symbiotic focus to it, but it still honors the interiority of the individuals. So um, I, I feel like there's something I'm seeing some connection there between you know the, this you know how 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 individuals are relating to the organization in the pandemic and post pandemic era and this idea of assemblage theory from speculative realism. That, that's that's one thing I'm kind of kind of thinking through a little bit on a high level. Matt, I love it. You can go to you go to fifty thousand feet and then you can be down at uh, you know ground level. It's awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> so, Matt, thank you so much for being with me today. Love the conversation. I look forward to future conversations. And uh, thanks for your good work, sir. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for the work you and the rest of the International Leadership Association are doing to drive uh, you know, a deeper understanding of the, the relevance, the importance, and in fact, the critical importance of this work, not just you know, in, in our public institutions, but really in every in, any gr- any social group that we have, we need to have more focus on leadership. So thanks for helping drive that. Oh, you bet. You bet. Okay, sir. Be well. Have a good day. I loved the conversation with Matt. Uh, here's a gentleman who has an academic bent, but is in the world of work trying to make all of this happen. You know, he mentioned a couple of things that I just want to underscore. Considerations that I don't know that we always think through, especially academics. That's time and that's scale. We need to be designing interventions that maximize time, that align with the flow of the organization. We can't necessarily take people offline for days and days consistently. How do we design leader development curriculum, programming, interventions that keep time into consideration? And then there's this whole challenge of scale. How do we scale this across languages, across time zones, across regions of the world? How do we scale this to 100,000 people? Wow, that's a fun, fun question. So Matt, thank you for the work that you're doing. I look forward to continuing the dialogue, continuing the conversation, and that theory and practice, theory and practice. We have two records on one turntable. Be well. Take care. As always, thanks for checking in. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.